0: Hi, this is Brent White, and welcome to my sermon podcast. In my last sermon, I talked about the classic Protestant doctrine of justification by faith alone. But I'm afraid that there was an 800-pound gorilla in the room that I didn't talk about, and that is the necessary role of good works in the Christian life. I mean, in today's scripture, James himself says that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What does that mean? Is James contradicting Paul? Well, that's what this sermon is all about. And I'm going to read the scripture now. It comes from James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. Before I begin, let's pray. Almighty God, in your sovereignty, in your providential care, you have given us exactly the Bible that you want us to have. We can trust, therefore, that your word is without (coughs) contradiction That it will unfailingly lead us to the truth about you, your son Jesus, and this glorious gospel. And in spite of that, we confess that when we read the Bible, we are sometimes confronted with very difficult to understand passages. And today's scripture is one of them. So, I pray that I would do my very best to to make this word clear. And that through my frail and fallible words, you will speak your infallible word into our hearts through your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Yesterday, Sports Illustrated had an article in which they said the following. J.J. Watt's might be the best defensive player in the NFL, but literally nothing he has done or will do on the field can ever top what he's done for the city of Houston in the past week. Have you heard about what this great defensive end for the Houston Texans has done uh, in the past week? A week ago, last Sunday, he launched a fundraiser to raise money for victims of the hurricane, victims of the flooding, and it was a very doable goal it was a it was a it was a substantial goal, but it was a doable goal for someone of his means and influence. He wanted to raise two hundred thousand dollars, and he surpassed that goal within two hours. Donations continued to pour in, and as they did so, he kept upping the goal and upping the goal and upping the goal again and as of yesterday afternoon he has raised over 17 million dollars and counting so here's a question one day when Christ returns and J.J. Watt stands alongside all of us and everyone who's ever lived and faces God in final judgment will this generous Selfless act count in Watts' favor toward his salvation. I'm reminded of something that Warren Buffett, the second richest man in the world, said a few years ago. Um, He decided a few years ago that he was going to give eighty-five percent of his fortune to five different charitable foundations. Um, 85% of $44 billion is $37.4 billion. And when he made this announcement, he said the following, there is more than one way to get to heaven, but this is a great way. Well, is Buffett right? Will $37.4 billion... Or Watts, 17 million and counting, help either of these men get into heaven? Based on what Buffett said, after all, he's thinking about eternity, thinking about what he has to do to make it to heaven, thinking, have I done enough? Uh, Have I given enough? Uh, Will this donation prove that I'm good enough, generous enough, unselfish enough to get into heaven? And I'm sure that if you surveyed average Americans, of the large majority of them, would agree that yes, 37.4 billion dollars is good enough to get into heaven. As a minister of the gospel. If I were to counsel Warren Buffett on this matter, I hope I would have the courage to look him in the eye and say, $37.4 billion is not enough. Not even close. And if he doesn't understand why, it's because he doesn't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. He doesn't know how far short. He falls of God's glory. How far short he falls of God's standards, which is nothing less than perfection. He doesn't understand the awful ugliness of his own sin. And as much as he is a genius when it when it comes to, to making and managing money, He has woefully underestimated the extent of his debt to God. $37.4 billion is less than a drop in the bucket of what he owes God. As Jesus said of another wealthy man in a not too unsimilar context. It's easier for, the cam- for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Of course, camels can't go through eyes of needles, which is the point. It's impossible. It's impossible for a rich man, at least relying on his own uh, resources to go to heaven, just as it's impossible for the rest of us to go to heaven. Rich people are not uh, uh, more sinful than anyone else. It's impossible for all of us. Not to mention, by the way, that in, you know, by the standards of, you know, the first century, all of us in this room are (laughs) wealthy. Um, So none of us is off the hook. So my question is, is is any of us, uh, is there hope for any of us well, there is hope, and this is where the gospel comes in. We don't have to do anything to get into heaven. Jesus did everything. He fulfilled every aspect of God's law. He lived a life of perfect faithfulness to his Father. He suffered the penalty for our sins that we deserve to suffer. He did all of that for us. We don't have to give anything. Jesus gave everything something infinitely more precious than money he gave his own precious blood for us for me for you for j.j watt for warren buffett for everyone am i saying am i really saying do i have the nerve to say that eternal life is an absolutely free gift yes it only requires faith in christ now I realize this is completely hypothetical, but suppose that Warren Buffett heard me preach this message of of the gospel of, of of God's free grace through Christ. He understood for the first time who Jesus was and what Jesus accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. And, and Buffett believed it. And he joined our church. And I hope he tithed to in my imagination, he does. And then suppose, and then suppose, he said to me, Pastor Brent, I've got to tell you, it was difficult for me to decide to give away so much of my fortune. But then I I heard about what Jesus did for me and the grace God gave to me, free of charge, offered without price, and now I feel so relieved. And I might ask him, you know, why he felt relieved. And maybe he would respond I- I'm so relieved that I won't have to go through with it. I- I'm relieved that I get to keep all of this money and-, and still be saved and still go to heaven when I die. Now, I don't know Buffett's heart. But if Buffett isn't already a Christian, and if this really happened to him, and if he really said that to me, what could we conclude about the genuineness, the sufficiency, the reality of Buffett's Christian faith? What would the Apostle James conclude about it? See, when we hear about this doctrine, which I preached on last week, this is part two of that series. um, When we hear about this doctrine of justification by faith alone, we better not think of it as an easier alternative to justification by works. To think of it in those terms is to completely misunderstand the gospel justification by faith alone isn't an easier alternative to to justification by works as if God tried out that plan when he gave ancient Israel, the 10 commandments and the rest of his laws. And of course they totally messed that up. They couldn't do it. And so God had a plan B and God sent his son, Jesus. And in this time Jesus did everything for us. So we don't have to do a thing No, the good news of the gospel is not that salvation through Christ is easy, whereas salvation through good works is hard. The good news of the gospel is that salvation through Christ is possible, whereas salvation through works is impossible. Do you you see the difference? Because it really makes all the difference. Easy has nothing to do with it and we get into trouble when we think it does but but i get it when we hear this this that we hear that salvation is a free gift available through faith in Christ alone and not works when we hear that we don't have to do anything to earn it well we can start to think of the christian life as something that's easy which by which 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 by the way uh, it, it is This happens around the time that we start sleeping in on Sunday. When we stop worshiping God in this sanctuary on Sunday morning. Because it's not really all that important to us. And we become antinomians. Do you know what that is, Diane? Antinomians. It's, It's a theological word. It means that we no longer care about keeping God's law. We don't care so much about doing things that please God. I mean, why bother? We're we're forgiven. We have saving grace. We don't have to do anything. Paul himself, he says in a few places in Romans, Paul himself was accused by his critics, by opponents of being an antinomian. In his letter to Romans, he says that these opponents are slandering him with this accusation. They're saying that he's saying that we can sin to our heart's content because after all, our sins are forgiven. In fact, the more we sin, the more forgiveness we have. The more forgiveness we have, the more of God's grace that we have. And the more of God's grace we have, the better, right? The more grace, the better. That's what his opponents were saying. Romans 6 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's what his critics were saying he was teaching. And Paul says, by no means. And it's possible that James himself had heard. What, how people were slandering Paul's gospel, how they were slandering Paul's message of justification by faith alone, how they were misunderstanding and misrepresenting this doctrine. And James wanted to set the record straight. Good works, James says, are in fact necessary for salvation. Good works are Necessary for salvation. Now, let me qualify that and then explain it. Let me qualify it by reminding you of the thief on the cross. He was nailed to a cross next to Jesus. He could literally do nothing, he could do no good work. He could only turn to faith in Jesus. And when he did, he was saved. Today you will be with me in paradise, Jesus said. He literally had no good works to show. In fact, he had a life of murder. And, uh, and just terrible, violent activity, if in fact he was a, a violent revolutionary, which most scholars believe he was. Whatever he was, he was not, you know, he was an unsavory character. He had no good works, yet he was still saved. I'm not saying that good works cause or, or, or cause us to be saved. I'm saying that if we are saved, we will necessarily have good works. If that thief on the cross could have come down off the cross, survived his wounds, recovered from the injuries, and went on to live a, a normal life, he would have demonstrated good works in his life that 's just a fact of what well of what the entire New Testament teaches. but I, I get it. I mean, when we approach this difficult scripture. It's easy for us to think that James is contradicting what Paul teaches. In verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Didn't I just preach last week from Paul that we are justified by faith alone? And it just says right here that James, James says that, that we're not justified by faith alone. Isn't that a contradiction? No. No. It's not. I mean, I know you don't believe me necessarily, but, but if we understand what James means when he uses the word faith, and we understand what, me, what James means when he uses the word justification, we will see that actually James and Paul are in harmony. So let me try to explain this. Let's talk about the kind of faith that James is talking about in this passage. Look at the first verse, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can this faith save him? Notice James doesn't say if someone has faith and not good works, but rather if someone says he has faith and not good works. In other words, in this hypothetical example, James is not conceding for a moment that this man possesses a sufficient, living, authentic Christian faith. No, this hypothetical person merely says he has faith. His faith is superficial. It's a matter of mere words. But none of us can be justified by a faith that is only a matter of words. Even if we believe those words, we are not justified by a faith that lives up here in our heads, a faith that is mere knowledge or intellectual agreement with a set of facts about God and Jesus and the gospel. Not that words and knowledge and intellect aren't vitally necessary for saving faith, but they're not sufficient, James says. Notice what he says in verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. See, there is no better theologian in the world than Satan himself. Satan began his life created as an angel. He lived in God's heavenly courts. He had firsthand knowledge of God firsthand knowledge of, of the same deep theological truths that we all affirm in this sanctuary every Sunday when we say the Apostles Creed or the Nicene Creed. He knew it better than we do because he had seen it. He knew who God was. He would agree with every point of the creed. And he knows the Bible better than anyone who's ever lived on earth except for Jesus himself. But the the devil's knowledge, as vast as it is, obviously doesn't save him. And a faith that is based only on this head knowledge cannot save us either. Do you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago in my Sunday morning Bible study uh, between the services. um, But you remember the story. A man is traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho on a very dangerous highway where he is beaten, robbed, left for dead on the side of the road. The man needs immediate medical attention or he will die. And along comes a priest who sees him but passes by without stopping. Then along comes another clergy person, a Levite, who sees him on the side of the road and walks on by without stopping to help him. Finally, a Samaritan does stop to help. And the Samaritan nurses his wounds and bandages him up and and delivers him. To uh, an inn where he can rest and recuperate and 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 he makes sure that that he pays uh, for all the expenses associated with with the injured man's convalescence so I asked the class what was the difference between the first two men, the religious men and the Samaritan and someone answered a perfectly respectable answer and said, the difference is the Samaritan stopped to help. Now, that sounds great, doesn't it? But before he stopped to help, Jesus says the following in Luke ten thirty three: but a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Before he did anything, he had compassion. Before he took any action, he had compassion. As I told the class, Jesus was constantly teaching that what counts in God's eyes is not so much what we do as what we are in here, in our hearts. In fact, even the good things we do, Jesus says, giving alms to the poor, praying, tithing, obeying God's law, even these good things can be easily corrupted by our sin. And even seemingly small sins are made a thousand times worse because of the condition of our hearts. So lust, Jesus says, is the spiritual equivalent of adultery. Anger is on the same spectrum as murder Therefore, the biggest difference between the Samaritan and these two clergymen was the condition of their hearts. You can't fake compassion after all. Either you have it or you don't. But if you don't have it, the problem is right here. This is what needs to change. So one important truth that Jesus is teaching is that what counts most is not what we do, but what we are in our hearts. If our hearts are right, If they have been sufficiently transformed by God's love and mercy and grace, then good works will naturally follow. Jesus makes the same point in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Good fruit cannot make a diseased tree healthy. Rather, good fruit is a sign that that tree is already healthy. In the same way, good works are a sign that our faith is healthy. Good works are a sign that our hearts have been transformed. Good works are a sign that we've been born again. That that kind of heart change has to happen first. And it happens through living faith and not dead faith. So James is attacking This deficient kind of faith, a faith that is words only, a faith that is only intellectual agreement, a faith that doesn't penetrate the heart, that kind of faith, James says, will never justify us. But a healthy faith, a living faith, that will justify us. And how do we know it's a living faith and not a dead faith? A living faith will naturally produce good works. It will prove itself by these works. It will demonstrate that it's genuine because of its works. This is what James means in verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. John Owen, who was an English minister in the 17th century, he was summarizing James's point when he said these words, we are justified by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. Or, as yours truly put it in a meme that I posted on Facebook on Friday, we are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith alone faith. I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> James, James cites Abraham to prove his point. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Justified by works? What does that mean? And I know that sounds confusing, but bear with me. James, you see, is referring to Genesis chapter 22, an incident that took place near the end of Abraham's life. In fact, it was Probably 37 years after God first made that promise to Abraham that he would have a promised son, and through that son, he would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the beach. The problem back then was that Abraham was 75 and his wife Sarah was in her late 60s. They were well past the point of having children. And even when they were younger, when they could have, when they were of childbearing age, they were unable to get pregnant and have children. Would Abraham step out on faith and, and do what God calls him to do, believing that somehow God would fulfill this promise? Well, yes. Genesis fifteen six tells us Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, according to Paul's letters, Galatians and Romans, this was the moment when Abraham was justified by faith alone. That's the moment when his sins were forgiven, when he was considered righteous before God, when he was saved. I think James would agree with that, but in verse 21, he's using justify in a different way. He's using it in a way that we often use it today. To justify means to prove something to be true, to demonstrate the truth of something. If you, I mean, you kids in school know this. When you're taking a math or a science test, your teacher often makes you, what? Show your work to prove that you really know what you're doing, that you're not just guessing at the answer. In fact, the final answer isn't as important as the work that you show. I mean, showing your work justifies you in the teacher's eyes. You have proven to the teacher that you really know your stuff. The common English Bible gets this message across nicely when it translates verse 24 to say that a person is shown to be righteous through faithful actions and not through faith alone. In Genesis 22, Abraham is also taking a test as God tells us, I mean, as, as we're told in verse one, God tested Abraham. Now, what was God testing? Was God testing Abraham's works? No, God was testing his faith. And, and how, how would God, how would Abraham, how would the world know that Abraham passed this test? How would Abraham justify himself? Well, the same way students justify themselves when they take math or science tests, by showing his works. Through his willingness to do what God commanded him to do. And what God commanded him to do in Genesis 22 was about as impossible as anything we could ever imagine. To offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Would Abraham trust God enough to do that? He doesn't end up having to sacrifice his son, but... He does offer him as a sacrifice. He's willing because God told him to. So believe me, Genesis 22 justifies Abraham's faith. 37 years later, when he acted on that faith under the most difficult circumstances imaginable, what he did in Genesis 22 didn't save Abraham but it did prove that Abraham had saving faith. That's what James is getting at. Now listen. 37 years from now. If we should live that long. Um, God expects each one of us. Young people are you listening to me? God expects each one of us. To demonstrate 37 years from now. The faith that we profess today. He. He wants to see works he wants to see works next year 10 years from now 20 years from now however long we live to the day we die god wants and expects us to show him good works not because those works save us but because those works demonstrate that our faith is a saving kind of faith so how are we doing what do our works, our actions, our good deeds say about our faith? Is it a living faith? The test for a living faith is not whether or not the, you know, a, a minister sprinkled water on you when you were an infant. It's not whether a minister dunked you by immersion in a baptistry when you were 12 or 13. It's not whether you prayed the sinner's prayer in response to a stirring presentation of the gospel after you walked down the aisle of a church when you were 13. It's not whether you stood up in church and and recited some vows and recited the creed as part of confirmation. It's not even, listen, it's not even whether you believe in Jesus if by believe we mean simply agreeing that these facts about Jesus are true. The test is whether or not our faith has changed our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit so that our lives will bear good fruit, by which I mean our lives will naturally demonstrate through our actions that our faith is alive and not dead. In closing, I want to read... The final paragraph from a great recently published book by a theologian named Thomas Schreiner. The book was called Faith Alone. Thomas Schreiner, Faith Alone. Um, And as I read this final paragraph, I want you to ask yourself, could I say something like this? Not the same thing, but something like this about myself. Is my experience as a Christian at least a little bit like his? He writes Finally, I know myself, at least to a limited degree. God, by his grace, has changed me and made me a new person. I have new affections and have lived a totally different life than I would have lived apart from Christ and the transforming work of the Spirit. Yet I still struggle with pride. Bitterness, resentment, lust, and so on. The fight with sin is not over, and I have had far too many defeats. But my confidence on the last day will not rest on my transformation. I have too far to go to put any confidence in what I have accomplished. Instead, I rest on Jesus Christ. He is my righteousness, He is the guarantor of my salvation. I am justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. If you believe that, will you say amen? Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on Sunday morning, I hope you'll consider worshiping with us at Hampton United Methodist. We are... On West Main Street in downtown Hampton, we have two worship services. We have an acoustic contemporary at 9 o'clock and a more traditional service at 11. I hope you'll join us if you can.